Thanks for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. It's Thursday, January 25th. The Mauna Kea Authority is just getting on its feet, but now a legal challenge aims to undermine its authority. We hear reaction to a lawsuit filed by the Office of Hawaiian Affairs just last week. A long battle to save an aging ship. The Falls of Clyde moved into its final phase, its historic designation stripped, and now the state prepares for bids to get it out of Honolulu's harbor. Will it end up in the scrap heap or make it back home to Scotland? And what can we learn about the Forbidden Island from its place names? A new book about Mihao, researched from the Hawaiian language newspapers, is out now. Plus, a new Kumukahua theater play imagines the fanciful and sometimes spooky life that Robert Louis Stevenson may have lived in Samoa. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The Mauna Kea Authority is on the cusp of selecting its first executive director, but now a legal challenge over the authority's existence has come into view. HPR reporter Kuvehi Reishi joins us today. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, the Office of Hawaiian Affairs is suing over the new Mauna Kea Authority, alleging the board is unconstitutional and that some of its members have conflicts of interest. Uh, the 11-member Mauna Kea Stewardship and Oversight Authority was created two years ago uh, to assume responsibility for managing the mountain from the University of Hawaii, who's had that role for upwards of a decade, since the 60s. Members of the authority were vetted and approved by the Senate last session, so they've really completed their first uh, year of of this five-year period to transition into power. Uh, UH professor Kamano Michaelani Beamer, one of the members of the new authority, says the process has been a grueling one for uh, the all-volunteer board. You know, Hawaii hasn't had a government entity that's had to do this in in decades. We're literally creating working groups uh, on stewardship of Mauna Kea, on um, creating the organizational structure for um, our office. Uh, We're creating uh, subcommittees to work on hiring consultants to establish um, our policies and procedures to be in alignment with the statutes and all of state procurement. And, you know, we're, we're very close to hiring our executive director. It, it took uh, a significant effort just to get our first staff member. So there is a secretary in place to help them deal with these meetings. And, you know, for the first year, it was sort of a try to figure out how we do this all volunteer without staff. They got the appropriation last year, $12 billion a year to get started. But Beamer says, you know, they vetted a handful of uh, what he said, very qualified candidates. These were mostly like uh, every other board done in executive session. So we we won't know until uh, that person really takes the position, uh, but that they are very close to making uh, that selection. Uh, The authority has been meeting virtually every month for the last year. I'd say a couple more special meetings in uh, anticipation of this uh, legislative session. Beamer says they've scheduled various community engagement meetings for the entity. They've done site visits to the Mauna, uh, but the AG's office did advise him not to comment specifically on the lawsuit. Uh, but you could hear uh, the concern in his voice. This, is, this authority was sort of branded as one of the few uh, community-based entities, right, that, that's composed of a number of Native Hawaiians to give representation and have a role in Mauna management, and that's what legislators were, were sort of sold on that idea. Um, and so the lawsuit was sort of, you know, 
Mata, I think, um, uh, met with some confusion in some uh, for some in the community. Uh, but for Kilo Pishota, a longtime advocate for improved uh, Mauna Kea management, the lawsuit uh, has less to do with the sort of criticizing that community-based approach of the authority and more to do with OHA being a good trustee of uh, Native Hawaiian government and crown lands, also known as ceded lands, which uh, Mauna Kea is a part of. This is not a measure against the Native Hawaiians who are on the committee or that were appointed to be on there, yeah. Yeah, it's not. It's not about that. It's about the process um, and the the ceded lands and OHA's role. Because, you know, OHA was on, supposed to be on the authority and then they got booted. But OHA isn't, I mean, it's just not like, oh, we're offended. It's like, no, we're mandated. So OHA, one of the uh, sort of trustees of this funding, so ceded lands funds, the ceded land trust, money that comes in uh, for all those lands uh, statewide, one-fifth of that, 20% goes to fund uh, OHA and uh, towards that mission of the betterment of uh, the condition of Native Hawaiians. And so for many years, a dollar a year, we all know that that line for the lease of uh, lands up there on Mauna Kea, not enough. And uh, essentially in the lawsuit that was filed last week in circuit court, OHA is arguing that the, the law that created the authority, Act 255, violates that contract clause of the U.S. Constitution and that it should be repealed. So digging more into that, OHA is saying that Act 255 uh, allows government agencies like DLNR and UH to avoid accountability for the more than 50 years of mismanagement of of Mauna Kea. This is something OHA sued the state over back in 2017, and that case is still active. The mismanagement of Mauna Kea, uh, this case is slated for trial in July, and so it would be in uh, OHA's best interest to get this business with the authority resolved before taking their arguments to to trial. Uh, because in Act 255, there, you know, there is this idea of, okay, we're going to let UH and BLNR, not necessarily, he said, they've been saying off the hook, we'll let them um, go and, and have a new authority put in place to take over the role that these guys were supposed to take over. And so there's an argument there that, okay, well, they're they're off the hook. We don't need, mm-hmm. you know, there's no merit for taking the court on this. But that's something that OHA does want to resolve um, in making sure they're held accountable. So is OHA saying anything like, okay, if they were put on this board, would right. it ma- make the lawsuit go away? Because it sounds like maybe not because they kind of need this key piece in here if exactly. they're Exactly. I think it's that the idea that those, the mismanagement and the history of mismanagement and accountability has not been resolved with the creation of the authority uh, in their in Oha's mind, and so figuring out how uh, to move forward uh, with this lawsuit while having that sort of um, still uh, an issue is something they're working on. But another sort of part of that lawsuit too that's going to be have to be addressed is it, you know Oha argues that at least two members of the authority, an astronomy observatory director and a Hawaii County employee, have conflicts of interest because of their positions and can't properly uh, become trustees of you know, ceded lands and what's right for ceded lands when they have other uh, masters to 
to please. Yeah, and then you also uh, reached out to uh, Senator uh, Lorraine Inouye. Lorraine Inouye, yeah, chair of the Water and Land Committee, a critic of the bill when it passed <laughs> last year, um, saying, you know, she's she's worried about oversight of this authority. We don't have any D yet. They've appropriated $24 million. Where is it going? She wants to keep tabs on them. And maybe in the future is really, I think, proposing a, a Senate bill this year, looking to kind of pare down uh, the authority's role uh, on conservation land there and keep that with uh, the State Department of Land and Natural Resources. So we will see more of this, this legislative session. And then uh, any additional info from Ohio? Not yet. Uh, they are trying to f- sort of figure out what uh, the response is going to be right now. Trustees have been uh, pretty tight-lipped. Hulu Lindsay, of course, saying, you know, ultimately our goal is to make uh, the Mauna more accessible and provide greater protections against the abuses it's sustained for more than 50 years. So getting that accountability factor, I think, is top of mind. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if uh, whoever it is they select as ED, if that would affect Help their decision the, to right. yeah to stay on or, or to accept the post. But thank you so much, Kuvehi. We have been hearing from HBR's Kuvehi Rishi, who is tracking the legal challenges to the Mauna Kea Authority. You can find her stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Bob Thurman, author of Man of Peace. I'm here next time talking about loving your enemies and how the Dalai Lama can inspire joyous resistance to negativity in society. Sunday at 11. Support for HPR comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, celebrating 75 years, offering a Master of Accounting program. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Today, we thumb through dusty captain's logs to track down naval history. 
We're thinking about a Scotsman who stopped here in the early decades of the 19th century. He came from Boston after wrapping a decade of service in the British Royal Navy. His arrival in Hawaii was somewhere between 1809 and 1811 aboard the American trading ship, the Albatross. After meeting King Kamehameha I, our mystery man was enlisted along with English sailor John Young to take command of the Navy of the Kingdom of Hawaii. At the king's command, he led an armada to Kauai to remove the Russian Fort Elizabeth and complete the unification of the islands. He and Young were also instrumental in persuading the king to allow the first Christian missionaries to come ashore in 1820. For today's Backyard Quiz, we're looking for the name of this intrepid Scot who was given land in New Valley, including control over the uh, uh, Kapapa fish pond. Uh, call 808-941-3689 or toll-free 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right scores an HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing parents and children experiencing homelessness with opportunities to secure housing, including Family Promise of Hawaii. NareetHawaii.com. Hey there, it's Michael Barbaro, host of The Daily. Join us for an in depth look into the world's biggest stories. Catch The Daily Monday through Thursday at 1.30 here on HPR One. around the fate of the historic ship Falls of Clyde ended this week. The Friends of Falls of Clyde, which used to own the vessel, filed its testimony to set the record straight. We talked to Bruce McEwen, president of the nonprofit, whose mission is to preserve and restore the iron-hulled ship and who still has hopes to get her back to Glasgow. A group there in Scotland, Falls of Clyde International, would like to see the ship's return, but McEwen laments the process and lack of communication with the Historic Preservation Division within the State Department of Land and Natural Resources in this latest go-around. The ship was taken off the historic register last fall, and an environmental review is uh, on its removal is underway. Here's McEwen. We've come to the reality that the ship is going to have to be removed from the uh, harbor, but our position is that it could possibly be safely removed uh, from the harbor intact, and hopefully that uh, Falls of Clyde International would still be able to put together their proposed project to get the ship safely from, once it's out of the harbor, uh, back to Scotland. So that's, that's, our, that's our hope. We're still, with fingers crossed, I guess, hope that you know she still can be preserved intact. The state just went through a process of delisting this vessel. 
uh, as a historic property. And you folks were dismayed that you were not notified in a timely fashion. Right. The history there is that when they had the first meeting in August of 2023, on the, at the 11th hour, we found out that there was actually a statutory requirement to give us 45 days notice and, uh, and allow us to respond prior to the meeting. Uh, so when we found that out, we pointed it out that we had never been given the notice. Uh, so they, uh, the chair uh, person removed it from the agenda. So we waited, holding our breath, to get the official 45-day notice, and it never came. And then when I was able to get an advanced copy of the draft removal plan, I saw in that draft for the first time that there had been a meeting held on November 17th, uh, to which we had no prior notice, and that the decision to delist it was passed. And then Dr. Downer went ahead and issued a letter to the, the national folks, National Park Service, stating that the state has made had made that decision. I actually got the official hard copy notice on January the 8th, 2024. It was sent to our P.O. box, which is a downtown, which I check on a regular basis, but there was never a notice in our mailbox that there was a letter to be picked up until January 8th. I, when, I got, when I got the hard copy, I had to sign for it. That was, that's my key issue with the state. I had to sign for that. They mailed, and the letter was dated October 4th, and it looked like it was attempted to be delivered on, I'm making an assumption here, because there was a 10 slash 11 on the outside of the envelope. It might have been some snafu in the postal system? Right. That's where they try to lay their hat. However, the issue is they knew, A, that we had them withdraw their decision in August, so they knew we were interested in being part of the decision making, okay? If they mailed the letter to us in early October and a month later, which would have been early November, they hadn't received our signed acknowledgement that we received the letter. In our opinion, anybody who understood, A, the owners of the ship want to be part of this meeting, B, we haven't received their signed acknowledgement that they received the letter, See, maybe we should follow up and find out why. I've had multiple emails between myself and the DLNR. You know, we filed official support testimony prior to the August. So everybody who could have contacted me to say, why haven't you responded? And I could easily say, because I have never seen any document, any letter that told me when the, when the uh, meeting was going to be held. So you didn't get proper notice until it was too late and the decision was already final, so that you can't really undo that. Correct. But, but you did submit testimony, you know, on the environmental assessment? That's correct. And so what, what's your concern there? The thing that caught our attention immediately was in their introduction on the draft, which quoted due to years of insufficient maintenance and neglect. Now, in our opinion, since we're the owners of the ship, and since we've owned it since 2008, it could be inferred by people reading it that we might be responsible. However, uh, the fact of the matter is that in the document, they go back to 2005 and say that they, uh, that, you know, that, that, that there were some reports about some deficiencies 
in the uh, you know in the in the standing as a national historical landmark. And guess what? Bishop Museum owned the ship. Bishop Museum owned the ship from. 1989 to 2008 when we took it over and so any neglect on the part of the ship remember before we took ownership Bishop Museum had it derigged to even make it in and you know, put it in in worse shape in the hope that they would be able to get it out and sink it and just uh, get it out of the public eye so we had all those years of uh, not Bishop Museum not putting her into dry dock and from 2008 to 2019, Friends of Falls of Clyde had a regular type of maintenance. Bruce, so your point there is that you want to set the record straight, that if they're right. making any uh, mention of the, the fact the ship is in disrepair, that you want to make it clear that under your watch, you would make effort to keep it. That, that's correct. We want to be clear that from when the Bishop Museum took ownership in 1989, uh, to the time we took over in 2008, they had done nothing to uh, ensure that this that the ship was sufficiently maintained. The Friends of Falls of Clyde maintains that the State Transportation Department under the previous administration should accept some responsibility for the state of the vessel since it halted the group from boarding the ship to continue its preservation efforts. Uh, McEwen says while the state indicates a preference to dismantle the ship at the pier, the group warns the structure may not be sound enough to handle the iron holes of the vessel. The state plans to solicit bids in the first quarter of this year. Whether the work can be done before hurricane season, which starts in June, is another question. Uh, but the State Historic Preservation Division did send over a statement saying that uh, it did uh, mail a letter of notice uh, from the Kapolei Post Office back in October uh, and that the uh, friends picked up the notice on January 8th of this year. On the next Fresh Air, why the regional war in the Middle East that no one wanted is already here, and why it may now be difficult to contain. We talk with New York Times White House and national security correspondent David Sanger. He writes that Iran and its proxies are posing a new challenge to the West, with Russia and China on Iran's side. Join us. Fresh Air, beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Are you interested in working for one of Hawaii's most dynamic media organizations? HPR is looking to hire a full-time board operator with experience in digital media production and broadcasting. If you're a quick study, possess strong time management skills, have a dynamic on-air presence, and if you enjoy new and interesting workplace challenges, HPR wants to hear from you. Visit hawaiipublicradio.org jobs to learn more. It was 160 years ago this month that news broke of the sale of Ni'ihau Island. King Kamehameha V sold a remote island for $10,000 to the Sinclair family, a family with Scottish roots. That was one of the interesting facts that John Clark came across in researching his book on 
the place names of Niihau. Here's Clark talking about what set him on this journey for his fifth book about the stories behind Hawaii's place names. Let's go back to 2005, and that's when I discovered the archive of Hawaiian language newspapers. And when I found it, being a lifelong surfer, I've been surfing since I was eight years old. Being a lifelong surfer, the very first word I searched for when in the archive was heinalo, surfing. And I got hundreds, hundreds of hits for that one word. And I realized how valuable this archive was in the Hawaiian language. And I decided to write a book about traditional Hawaiian surfing based on everything in this archive. So that was book number one, Hawaiian Surfing Traditions from the Past. And then I followed that using the same methodology. I followed that with North Shore place names, Kalaupapa place names, and then I decided to do Ni'ihau place names. And so what was maybe the most surprising thing you found in your research? One of the surprising things to me was, well, let me preface the story this way. There's no wetland taro grown on Ni'ihau. It's a very dry island. It's very arid. And so they don't have taro. And of course, poi kalo, poi made out of taro, isn't available there, which of course was the staple of the Native Hawaiians. So to get poi kalo, the Ni'ihau residents had to go to Kauai and get the taro there and then bring it back to Ni'ihau. The channel between the two islands is 17 miles, the Kalakahi Channel. And I'm circling around to answer your question. One of the things that surprised me was that during times of drought or famine, there was a lot of traveling across that channel to just to get food, to get your basic starch. And a lot of people were lost at sea. And you think about this now, we're back in the 1800s. There's no Coast Guard. There's no emergency beacons. When you overturn in the middle of any of the channels between the islands, you're on your own. Some people made it, you know, either to Kauai or Ni'ihau, and a lot of people didn't. And that was one of the biggest surprises to me was how many people were lost transiting that channel. And you have a background with the fire department. Yes, I do. (laughs) I was two years as a city lifeguard stationed out at Sandy Beach and then I joined HFD, and I was, I was a firefighter for 33 years. Yeah, and and really rescues, you know, uh, are are such a big part of, yes, of the department. Are. And yes. so, yeah, when you think of that, uh, because that's such a treacherous crossing, you know, what they had to do at that time. Exactly that, as you're getting at, you know, being a former lifeguard and a former firefighter, and as you're saying uh, here in Hawaii, anyway. The firefighters go in the ocean, and we make ocean rescues just like the lifeguards do. So that really hit home for me was all of these people who were lost at sea. The owners of the island, the Robinson family, part of their business operation is called Ni'ihau Helicopters. And they run a a charter helicopter service to the island for anybody that wants to visit. 
And I've never taken that particular helicopter ride, but uh, one of my sons went on it recently, and he said that they stopped in two places on the island, one at the north end and one at the south. And the pilot, of course, is very knowledgeable about the family and the island and its history. So that is one way that the public can see Ni'ihau and actually step on the island. Yeah, but it's not like in huge numbers, you no. know, so yeah, vast majority of people who are familiar with Ni'ihau will probably be unlikely that they would actually visit there. What else maybe surprised you as you were doing your research? When I decided to research the book, I assembled a master list of all of the place names on the island, and that's what I used to do my research. So... To get those names, I read every book in print that I could find about the island of Ni'ihau. And one of those books is called Aloha Ni'ihau. And it's the biographies of three native Hawaiian women who were born and raised on the island. And they spoke about the island in Olelo Ni'ihau, which is the Ni'ihau dialect. And their stories about the island were translated by Keo Smith, who is also the translator of my book, Niao Place Names. But anyway, as I was reading through all of Keo's translations, I ran across a food that they used during times of drought and famine when they didn't have poi. They called it poi palawa. And palawa is the Hawaiian word for flour, like baking flour. So they would take just regular flour, you know, like you buy in a supermarket, mix it with water, boil it, and make a paste. And that substituted, during times of famine or drought, that substituted for poikalo. Interesting. So yeah, which is whatever you can do to get by, but yeah, how do you make it as traditional as possible, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess when you think too of, you know, how we have like ulu flour today, right? Or mac yes, flour, you know? Exactly. I guess you become resourceful. <laughs> <laughs> you do. So I took that term that I found, poi palawa, and I searched for it in the Hawaiian language newspapers. And I found several articles that mentioned it. And one of the articles actually went back to California. And it was Hawaiians living in California during the early 1850s. They were there for the gold rush. And of course, they didn't have taro there. So they came up with this idea of making poi out of flour. And they really liked it so much that they wrote back to the Hawaiian language newspapers and described what they were doing. And I think the, the natives here, you know, the native Hawaiians here in, in the islands, they read that article, that letter to the editor, and they learned about Poi Palawa, including the people on Niihau. So it's the next best thing yes. <laughs> to the real McCoy. <laughs> yes. The Hawaiians, um, when the missionaries came here, they made it a point to school the Hawaiians. And that schooling turned the Hawaiian community here in Hawaii 
in the 1800s that turned them into some of the most educated people in the entire world. They could read and write in Olelo Hawaii, their own language. And the historians back in the day encouraged them to write to the newspapers, to write letters to the editor, to record the histories, to record anything that they were familiar with. So it generated this fantastic archive of Hawaiian culture and it's online and searchable. The Office of Hawaiian Affairs maintains the site, their Papakilo database, and anyone can search for anything in that archive. When you find the articles, though, you just have to be able to translate them or have someone do it for you. What is it that you hope that people will get out of this book? Well, I think the majority of the books about Ni'ihau have been written just based on the histories that have been available in English. And I think there's a lot of information that I found in the articles in the Hawaiian language newspapers that really adds to the history of the island and to what went on there. The, the Hawaiian language newspapers started back in 1834. The island was sold in 1863. So there's history in there about what was going on on the island before the Robinson family ever owned it. And there's also the history of when they bought the island and what happened after that. And this is all in the writings of Native Hawaiians. So I think that's what people are going to get out of it, is a, a lot of information that they haven't seen before about that island. That was historian and author John Clark. His new book, Ni'ihau Place Names, is available through University of Hawaii Press. We'll have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Family members of hostages held by Hamas are furious. This week, they stormed the Israeli legislature, demanding leaders make a deal so hostages get released. But Israel's war cabinet is divided. One member even doubts the war against Hamas is winnable. Divisions in Israel's government, that's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the Daily. When you support HPR, you support locally produced programs featuring locally produced music, including Connie Kapila Sunday. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Connie Kapila Sunday. I'm Kaylee Iloma, and I'm so happy to be with you again on a Sunday from 2 to 4 p.m. to offer you great Hawaiian music from all periods. Hawaii Kula Ivi. Aloha noi kako, you are tuned in to member-supported Hawaii Public Radio 1's Hawaii Kulaivi, Ovono Keio, DJ Mermaid, Pedro Kamara. And Mauka Tumakai. This is Mauka Tumakai. I'm your host, Roger Bong. Your support brings the music of Hawaii to the world. Support Hawaiian and local music programs on HPR. Donate at hawaiipublicradio.org. 
And now it's time to unfurl today's Backyard Quiz answer. We were searching for the name of a Scottish officer in the British Royal Navy who became a loyal ally of King Kamehameha I and served him as commander of the Navy of the Hawaiian Kingdom. He played a role in the unification of the islands under Kamehameha and in the growing influence of Christianity in the kingdom. Some historical accounts credit him with adding the Union Jack to the design of the Hawaiian flag. He's quoted as saying, if we don't pledge allegiance to Britain, we may all perish. After living a long and prosperous life in the islands, he died in 1871. He's buried in the Nu'uanu Cemetery next to his best friend and fellow Scotsman, Andrew Auld. The Scottish couplet on their tombstone reads, Two cronies from the land of Heather are sleeping here in death together. Known to the Hawaiians as Alika Napunako Adams, the sailor we were looking for is Captain Alexander Adams. We had lots of calls on this quiz question, uh, but our winner today, Michelle from Kalihikai. Uh, that's our quiz. If you have one to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. I Tu Fafine is a new play opening at Kumukahua Theater tonight. It focuses on the life of acclaimed writer Robert Louis Stevenson and his family in Vailima, Samoa. Stevenson is best known for the classic novel Treasure Island. He moved to Samoa in 1890 and died there four years later. The play was written by celebrated local playwright Victoria Newbull uh, and weaves together themes of relationships and the supernatural while examining the portrayal of women in literature. It's directed by Lorena O'Malley, professor of theater at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. She sat down with the Conversations Russell Subiano in our studio to talk about the production. My dear Colvin, the most remarkable thing happened to me yesterday. There is something deliriously fine about keeping a secret, but also about confessing one. And I know you've heard me go on and on about our supposed Aitu Fafine here at Bailima, our beautiful, irresistible, resident lady ghost who kills by attracting and then putting her victims into a slow, fatal sleep. Yeah, it has to do with Stevenson, his wife, her two children, so sort of his stepkids, mm-hmm. and they're in some ways, it's all true, but then what Victoria makes up is these two visitors who are the Samoan characters and there's kind of like attraction to them but then they all start to get into debates particularly about women's literature and the uh, portrayal of women. In the middle of the whole thing Robert Louis Stevenson's nanny from Scotland appears and then creates these um, what she calls bogey tales like scary bedtime stories and they're all about these vengeful women characters ghosts who haunt and take vengeance so those are happening throughout the debates are happening the love interests are happening and then yeah then it all kind of comes together in this miraculous way yeah (laughs) (laughs) sounds like sounds like a recipe for some very interesting conversations (laughs) yes yes all right all right (laughs) And like you mentioned, the fictional story features famed writer Robert Louis Stevenson, probably best known for Treasure Island, right? Strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I've read that the play will give literary fans a glimpse into his eccentric, talented family. And I imagine that 
all novelists must come from colorful families. <laughs> <laughs> can you can you expound on his family? Yeah, and so he he met Fanny Stevenson. She's about ten years older than him, and he met her in sort of an artist colony, and they they got married. She'd been married before, and so she had these two children that appeared in the play, Belle and Lloyd. They all end up together in Samoa right toward the end of Stevenson's life. He was in ill health his entire life. He had bronchial problems. He died very young at the age of 44. And those last years he spends in Samoa, builds a big house there, interacts actually with local politics. And his wife is also a writer. Both children are writers. They do drawings, paintings in the play. They're sort of acting out things. So there's just a vibrant kind of artistic life going on. And like you mentioned before, there's like a supernatural aspect to it. You've got some what sounds to be like some very colorful, interesting characters as well, right? Yeah. Uh, So one thing for me as a director was to secure a a really strong cast. It's a seven-person cast, ensemble cast. They're all, all in and out constantly. There's something like... 40 scenes in the play so they're just like coming on stage off stage and then they'll act out these tales so they're throwing on masks and costumes and the mistress of the house who thought herself ever so fine was always calling on kitty to use her powers kitty ranky were beauty woman pardon madam i did not hear the call now, Katie Ranky, I wanted to be asking your spirits, what's become of my fine paddle necklace? Oh, madam, they are looking. They say you shall find the necklace on the floor of the wardrobe, underneath your soft silk shawl. Now, Katie Ranky, ask your spirits, what's become of the fine new pony brought home for our bairns? Oh, madam. This little pony, they say, has run to the hill in the eastern vale, and there he be eating in the fine, tall grasses. Oh, but one day, the mistress asked a terrible question. Now, Ketaranke, ask your spirits, where's my husband? And why is he so many days late in returning to our home? Oh. Forgive me, madam, they cannot see. I say, tell me, Pete or you shall go without food and water. Oh, no, mistress. Do not ask me, for they say no good will come of it. I say, tell me what they say, Kitty, or you shall suffer. So just really pushing them to their limits, and I have to say, Honolulu came through for me. I have an amazing cast of seven, some of whom have never performed at the theater before. Some are more veteran. This idea that such an acclaimed writer like Robert Louis Stevenson moving to Polynesia, to Samoa specifically, I thought that was a pretty interesting place to start a story. And maybe a part of his life that maybe not so many people know about. What do you know about the time that he spent there? Yeah, well, you know, he... He's definitely what we would call today a settler, right? You know, he's from another culture. But because he was from Scotland and he was essentially, you know, a leftist socialist and had that background of seeing the kinds of 
things that had happened in Scotland with the suppression of the Scottish culture, that he was immediately sensitive to what was happening and you know became involved, wrote up a history of what was happening, both with kind of clan battles there in Samoa, but also you know he could see on the horizon what might happen with colonization and was doing what he could to try to prevent it, to write about it as well. So he was deeply appreciative of the culture, and it seems like, you know, there was a lot of appreciation for him there. I have not been there to see Vailima, which is his home, but it's still preserved now as the Robert Louis Stevenson Museum there in Samoa, and there's quite a bit of affection, at least among some people, for for what he accomplished there and what he meant. When Victoria Nalani Newbold was writing the play do you know why she chose to focus on Stevenson as the center of her play? Yeah, I mean, she she talked to me about it. She had always had in mind to do something about Stevenson and, in fact, had many years ago tr- started this play and then just couldn't quite make it work. And then it was really her COVID play. You know, she had mm. some time <laughs> and, and some isolation that she needed, and it flowed out, as according to what she said about it. My first thought was that I'd seen the Aitu Fafine. Did you say Aitu Fafine? Did I? I don't think she's your type at all. <laughs> Why is that? Because Susitella likes women that are women that are more original. You know me. Everyone in Apia knows Robert Louis Stevenson. <laughs> well, go on, lass, about the women. Please, you have my full attention. Why well, you seem to like women who have inner strength, who defy convention, brave women like Fanny. Like Fanny? Hmm. Not like the women in your stories, they're a little wooden. How is it I've never met you? I'm Vaimani. You know all the Afakasi families in Akia, and I'm sure I've never seen you before. I'm just visiting my mother's Aino. That she's just always been fascinated with him and his family. She has both Hawaiian and Samoan culture in her background. I think she is always fascinated with that, you know, what is the connection between different cultures. And that's very present in the play because we have the characters who are from the Stevenson and we have the, the Afakasi characters. It's been fascinating for me as a director because it's something we try to work into the design as well. We're replicating a a particular famous room from the home in Samoa called Vailima. And this wall has such a conglomeration of sort of Samoan elements, Western elements. It's got a sword. It's got a Samoan war club. You know, it's it's just such a mix. It is all that blend that I think fascinates her. And speaking of mix, and we've both mentioned before that the play has some interesting characters. The play has a, a supernatural kind of spooky element to it. But you've also been quoted as saying that Aitu Fafine addresses ways in which women are vilified in society for their sexuality, intelligence, and freedoms. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So I think if you look back at the career of Victoria Nalani Nubel, she's centering women in what she writes about in almost everything she does, conversion of Kahaumanu, Emelehua, story of Susanna. Again and again, she returns to looking at the position of women in society, and this is no different. One of the particular debates in the play is whether a writer who might portray women characters in a certain way might actually then affect people's perception of them and the perception of the gender. So there's a lot of debate amongst everyone in the play. 
We read your story, Susatala, ah. and we had long discussions with her. Oh, and what do you discuss? And we always discuss the women. The women? <laughs> she says we should pay attention to what people write about us in novels. What a marvelous idea. A fascinating idea. Why would you want to pay attention to the women? Because people believe what they read in novels about groups of people. <laughs> what are you saying? What does Othello say about the Moors, or the Merchant of Venice about the Jew? Don't people believe that? Perhaps it's true. What in a general way, I mean. See, people write things about groups of people over and over again, and readers believe them. And your aunt supposes that women are one of these groups? Yes. <laughs> and what does she say about my women? Well... Oh, go on, lass, don't be shy. Well, she says they're mostly non-persons, not whole characters like the men. And then when the nanny tells these spooky stories, there's almost always a woman who's the villain in the story. For example, she actually tells the story of the character of Medea who will briefly appear in the play. And so, you know, a woman who maybe her side of the story hasn't been heard but has been vilified. So she's looking at that issue really throughout the play. The play's writer, we've talked about her before, Victoria Nalani Nubel, she's received the Hawaii Award for Literature, the highest honor the state bestows on a writer. What is it about her ability to translate how she sees the world onto the stage that makes such an impact on audiences? Mm, yeah, what a great question. I, I'm just a huge fan. And you know what I see in what she does, she, she mixes a lot of things. She has poetry, she has humor, she has what I would call theatricality. And so it, it's that blend and just kind of then add on to that the sensitivity of culture and then just being a great storyteller in her own in her own right, this play is full of storytellers, whether it's Stevenson, whether it's the nanny, and then there's stories from the Afakasi characters. So they're all in one way sort of a part of her character, I think. Can you share with the audience the show's performance details? Sure. So we open January 25th, and it's easy to remember we close February 25th. So it runs four weekends, uh, Thursday, Fridays, Saturday nights at 7, Sundays at 2, with no Super Bowl performance. Okay. <laughs> yeah, always got to be Just aware of the Super Bowl. Give right? it up. Yeah. <laughs> Lorena, thank you so much for coming into the station. Really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, nice to talk to you, Russell. That was UH professor of theater, Lorena O'Malley, talking to HPR's Russell Subiono. O'Malley is directing the new Victoria Nalani Nouvel play called I Tu Fafine, opening tonight at Kumu Kahua Theater. Go to the conversation page of our website for a link to more information. That is it for us today. Up tomorrow, Hawaii U.S. Representative Jill Takuda will be chatting with us. And we reflect on her first year in office. Give us some feedback. Call our Talkback line 808-792-8217 or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find the conversation uh, podcast on Spotify, Apple, or at your favorite podcast store. 
I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.